You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Happy New Year's soon. Yeah, it's been a fun year talking about uh, magazine writing. Yeah, magazine writing podcast. Yeah. yeah, this is a magazine writing podcast. I would I hate for it to be writing. named anything else. Um, but we have, we really have had a great year, and uh, we, we've really enjoyed uh, you listeners. Um, we're going to take a. a couple weeks off here over christmas uh we'll be back on january 8th uh but in the meantime uh take the opportunity check out the archive uh, yeah we were going to put together like a best of show but then uh that didn't happen <laughs> so maybe we could just recommend one of our yeah one, well, well, one something did. we really enjoyed yeah, yeah. Well, favorite guest who who's your favorite guest of the year no no one's no hurt feelings for those who are snubbed but who's your favorite i'll guest, start Evan? and say uh john ronson that john was awesome that was, he was uh, great he was awesome was really fun to talk to and hilarious and also had some pretty insightful things to say about journalism as well yeah the week after john ronson was gay talise that was also uh pretty amazing and uh, I'm going to go with uh, the Evan Wright episode I did a few weeks ago. I thought that, I mean, a little bit uh, colored by uh, things I can remember, which yeah, is those, about a those, month and a half. <laughs> those all happened in the last, like, two months, but whatever. <laughs> I also, we yeah. have no collective memory. I was, I, I'm, I'm actually going gonna to change my pick. I'm sorry, I had a very good time with uh, Natasha Vargas Cooper. That was what that that episode. You should go listen to that episode. That episode has, uh, I think, the funniest moment. That was a lot of, that was a lot of fun. Um, we had some great sponsors this week. Um, first sponsor is Random House, uh, which is pushing George Saunders's 10th of December. It's a collection of stories. Uh, it really needs no promotion as it is so, so excellent. Um, but thank you, Random House. Um, pick up George Saunders 10th of December wherever you buy great books. Max, who else? Uh, you guys are going to be shocked by this. Our second sponsor is Tiny Letter. Get out. Yeah, it's crazy. Tiny Letter has sponsored every single episode of the Longform Podcast in 2013. We we owe them a, a great deal of thanks. We should go down go down there and bring them a basket of plums or something. A <laughs> tiny basket, tiny basket. Shouldn't we send that to them in a newsletter? I like it. Uh, here is uh, Max and John Sexton. <laughs> it's uh, Joe Sexton, Sexton, and we didn't talk about him yet. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I didn't know what his name was. Max, who did you talk to this week? Uh, I talked to Joe Sexton. Who uh, is a senior editor at Probub? It's such a like perfect way for us to go out. Um, he's a he's a senior editor at ProPublica. He was at the Times for twenty five years. He worked all kinds of different desks at the Times, including Metro and Sports. And he, in part, is responsible for Snowfall. Well, I'm really interested. I'm really looking forward to hearing from John Sexton. <laughs> Isn't that a guy who's like runs NYU? I, all of my wrong names are oh, real yeah. people. Yeah, he might be the. Yeah, he's the dean of NYU. All right, here's me and John. And then I, I lived in a boxcar with another kid from uh, Brooklyn and eight Navajo Indians uh, that went along southern Wyoming. Uh, more or less in line with uh, Interstate 80. And uh, you lived in the boxcar, and the boxcar moved along uh, the track as you did work. Gandhi dancers, it's an old term for people who uh, laid track uh, 
in the more modern version of it, uh, they'd have uh, vehicles that would go out. They're called low-lift gangs, and they'd go out and straighten the track. And then you had to swing a spike mall behind it to re-spike uh, uh, the rails. How old were you when you were doing that? Uh, 19. Well, I had a brief uh, and inglorious time at the University of Colorado. How a Brooklyn wannabe punk wound up at the University of Colorado is a curiosity. To yeah, me what did, pe- what did people day. think of the uh, Brooklyn punk at the University of Colorado? Shit did not go down very well. Um, <laughs> The uh, you know coming out of Brooklyn in the you know in the 1970s, and then being dropped into probably whatever the the whitest most privileged city in America, Boulder, Colorado, um, proved to be fairly toxic. And uh, I got locked up a couple times, and then they you know basically asked locked me up to, for what? Uh, the first was assault, um, and you know particularly boneheaded. Assault because I, I got in a fight with a police officer. It's going to assault somebody. <laughs> I think that's a techni- technically a different crime. I think that's I, assaulting a police officer. Yes, yeah, so it's technically actually a, you know, or very much a felony. Um, <laughs> okay. So having flunked out of uh, the University of Colorado, we made our way up to Wyoming. And uh, that's where I spent my contemplative 19th year um, trying to figure out the future. You know we're recording. Are you serious? <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> Uh, well, hey, Joe Sexton, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're the one that's going to have the answer for it. <laughs> I think it's on. I think it's on you. People right. just people just judge the guest. No pressure or anything, but no one really awesome. worries about us. Right. Um, there are many things for us to discuss. Your 19th year in Wyoming. We could probably spend more time on that. Maybe we should. Um, I'm also interested in where you are now. You are now at ProPublica, and there's a lot to discuss about that. Um, in between those two things, there were like 25 years at the Times. Uh-huh. Maybe we should talk about that. Sure. And the fair place to start, perhaps, is something that happened toward the end of the 25 years, which was uh, a story that was called uh, Snowfall, which everyone listening to this, including uh, myself, has probably heard that word, those two words. Uh, many more times than they expected to. Yeah, well, the, uh, they almost never made it into, you know, we we did, a, just to back people up a little bit, um, we decided that in the sports department of the Times that we would take a look at uh, a fatal avalanche out in Washington State. Um, three people had lost their lives, and there had, you know, been a string of of avalanches, deadly avalanches, uh in North America, and we thought, you know, we might be able to do a good story, mixing a little bit of science, a little bit of uh, group psychology. There were 16 skiers who went out that day, um, you know, a little bit of the physics of avalanches. Um, but we knew that if we, you know, put in a lot of time uh, out at uh, the Stevens Pass uh, ski resort and with the people who were involved in it, um, we could probably do a pretty uh, meticulous and we hoped uh, compelling and uh, in some way illuminating narrative of, of what went wrong that day. The story that John Branch wrote is fantastic, but I I feel like it, it I'm not even sure how many people actually read the whole thing. <laughs> um, the reason it got so much attention was that presentation. I guess what I'm asking is sort of like, were you, were, did you have that thing in your head that big multimedia blowout people's mouths dropping when they look at it did you were you looking for a story that you could give that treatment to or was it like it just kind of uh spiraled no i mean not not particularly i mean uh, the uh i served as both uh, metropolitan editor and sports editor at the times and uh my rep was mostly as a provocateur of one kind or another, um, which, you know, they were quite uh, patient with and let me uh, play out for 25 years. Um, then I think they pro- probably had quite enough of me. But um, anyway, the um, but our reputation or our little saying on, uh, particularly when I was on Metro, you know, whether it involved a picture or a story or a big news event or whatever, it was, you know, hey, when in doubt blow the shit out (laughs) and uh so when we started thinking about trying to to tell the story of the avalanche and at stevens pass um you know i think we presumed 
we were going to blow the shit out. Yeah. Um, but no one, certainly no one on the word side, um, you know, allowed their imagination to go quite as far as uh, uh, the people who worked in our photography departments and our graphics department and our multimedia department. And uh, they're the people who, you know, had the initiative and the talent um, to make it the uh, pretty extraordinary uh, reading experience it was online. Um, in fact, to the extent I had any role in it, it was at one point to try to fucking limit it. <laughs> really? Uh, well, they sat us down and, and they were interested in really trying to, you know, push the question of could you integrate. Who's they? Steve Duanis is the, uh, uh, he's now been uh, appointed to, I think, assistant managing editor or whatever. At the time, he he ran our uh, graphics department and did a lot of work in the multimedia. Andrew DeVagal, who was there, has now gone on to Second Story in Portland, um, was there. And uh, between the two of them, they were like, let's see if we can take it to the next level, this notion of integrated storytelling of words and pictures and audio and video and uh, graphics and, um, you know, I said, sure, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm open to it. And then they came in and they made a presentation and they said, well, you know, if we do this, we might have to kind of tailor the writing a little bit so that, you know, as you're reading it, you know, you're going to come up naturally in the narrative with something that we want to present visually and I was like, uh, I'm done. I'm out of here. <laughs> no, no, no. The word is, you know, our words are sacred, and I would never, I would never contemplate, you know, changing the storytelling to suit, um, you know, uh, some, you know, visual pop online. And uh, I got up and made a very principled stand and self-serious uh, um, announcement that it was all over. And, you know, over the next 48 hours, people were like, Joe, don't be a dick. Um, <laughs> you know, play along here. It, it'll be fun. It's and they, they were right, and uh, me and my principals went down in flames. Um, but all to the good. It's funny that those were your principals. I feel like one of the, uh, one of the critiques that is now leveled against uh, stories that get the snowfall treatment is that... Uh, is that the stories themselves, the actual text, the actual writing, <laughs> the actual writing. Beer number two. There you go. You, right. you get ready. They, the actual writing isn't as good. Like the, that people aren't actually paying enough attention to the text and that like the stories maybe wouldn't even hold up on their own. Right. And, you know, and you know uh, well, I, I don't know. I might take issue with the idea that they wouldn't hold up on their own. The idea that people may leave the experience you know, more impressed or more uh, or have found more memorable some of the, uh, you know, uh, the visual or interactive elements of it. I have no problem with that. Um, you know, uh, there's no hierarchy <laughs> that yeah. says, you know, or there shouldn't be, uh, although, you know, obviously I thought there was, um, you know, Words are most important, and then come fucking pictures, and then, you know, um, <laughs> you know, people came away from the experience saying, you know, holy fuck, you know, I watched their simulation of the avalanche, and I, like, for the first time in my life, I figured out that's what it looks like. Right, that's well, how the thing actually that, works. That's as good, in, you know, an experience and an outcome as, you know, somebody who said, you know, I read John Branch's words and wept or whatever right which many people did but you know they you know people were welcome to take away from it what they wanted and and uh you know it's not exactly a novel notion um you know from the time at least since photography has existed right there's been some competition of you know what's more powerful what's more impressive what's more resonant, what's more enduring, you know, um, somebody's uh, glorious prose or somebody's stunning picture. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, the they all need to actually have a purpose. I think that's what people react badly to, is when some, like, 
you know, you've got this amazing text or these amazing photos, and then there's like a schlocky video that doesn't make any sense and it's thrown into the thing. I have another question for you, though, which is uh, related but not completely related. You seem kind of bored telling the story. Have you been telling the story over and over again? Well, you know, I get I I, I joke around a lot uh, about it that if I never hear the fucking words (laughs) snowfall again, I'll be a happy man. The, uh, no, it was an extraordinary experience. And, um, you know, uh, uh, to the extent I evince any kind of, uh, you know, uh, lack of uh, emotion or enthusiasm for it is that, you know, I, I've spent most of the time trying to say, like, I didn't have that much to do with it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the people who, who need to be credited should be credited. Um but, um, you know, but, uh, you know, some of the weariness is only that, you know, it, it, like many things that succeed, um, you know, it becomes, uh, you know, this straw man and a bunch of phony debates. Uh, and it feels to me like, you know, in the, the sort of mythology of the snowfall stuff, one of the things that keeps getting talked about in the, the genesis of that story is how you kind of navigated the politics at the times to get that done like you know you were saying earlier like for the whole time you were there that was kind of your rep or whatever but like how do you how do you get it done how do you make that happen well you know some of it's a a consequence of you know having spent as much time at the paper as i did you you make relationships with people um you know uh who have uh, um, extraordinary gifts I think if they trust you and um, and their experience of having worked alongside you has you know proven uh, meritorious and uh, entertaining, um, they're more open to listening to you know you dream ridiculous dreams. The um, uh, the more senior you know management of the place. Um, is, uh, I think, you know, historically been more conservative. I think newspapers, actually, for all of the, you know, the claims of their liberalism and their uh, leftist slant, and I think they're among the most conservative organizations in America. Um, I like to say that... Philosophically. Well, I don't mean politically, right. It's, you know, about... um, the willingness to, I mean, I get a, a little mileage as, you know, my incredible celebrity fucking grows uh, <laughs> for the 11 and a half minutes that it lasts out of saying that, you know, my experience in the in a newspaper newsroom over the years has been that, the, you know, the word you hear least often, the word that's hardest for people to say uh, in that environment is the word yes. Um, it's safer to say no. Uh, you get second guessed uh, less often if you say no. Um, you know your job's not quite on the line if you say no. Um, but if you're willing to say yes, um, and you're willing to, you know, face the consequences of having said yes, uh, then quite amazing things can happen. And uh, you know the how snowfall came to be is you know not really a story of of uh you know <laughs> institutional intrigue or a secret plan or whatever um but we didn't ask for a lot of approval um and we just did it and believed that when we presented it to the people who mattered most to say yes we will publish this we will as i say blow it the fuck out that they will say yes because it will be impossible to say no <laughs> right cuz it'll already be done no but that the work itself will be you know impressive and formidable right. enough that they see um the value of it and that absolutely happened in this case you know, and uh, look, the people of the New York Times, uh, you know, I, I owe my uh, life to them. I owe my children's uh, education and uh, good health to them. 
um, they're a spectacular and brilliant bunch, and they indulged me for a lot of years, and uh, and and they forgave me, you know, for the stuff I did that didn't work out so brilliantly. What's on that list? You know what? I, my memory's not great. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. This one slipped your mind. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, I, I, every career, you know, has its good moments and bad. And uh, anyway, you know, what's nice about the, you know, uh, about the times, and it's both, you know, ennobling about it and humbling about it is, you know, if you fuck up, you face it. Yeah. And uh, can't hide. No. And, uh, you know, I did my share of fucking up. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for just a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week, uh, about which I am pretty excited. This is pretty cool. Our sponsor this week is 10th of December. That's the short story collection by George Saunders that was published by Random House earlier this year. You know this book. You know 10th of December. You definitely know George Saunders. He has uh, been on long form in all sorts of ways. Um, the book has gotten every accolade a book could ever hope to get. It is a National Book Award finalist. Uh, it was one of the New York Times Book Review's top 10 of 2013. Uh, previous guest on this po- uh, on this podcast, Joel Lovell, wrote a story for the New York Times Magazine about Saunders. The title, George Saunders Has Written the Best Book You'll Read This Year. It's really, really good. But here's another reason why you should go get it. Saunders is going to be on the podcast. We're in a couple of weeks. Saunders is going to be on the podcast. I'm going to interview him, and uh, we are going to talk about 10th of December. So this is like our version of book club or whatever. I'm asking you, go get the book, go get 10th of December, read it, and then in a couple of weeks when we've got Saunders on, you'll know what we're talking about. Thanks very much to Random House for sponsoring us this week. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, Saunders, but I'm looking forward even more to getting back to Joe Sexton. Well, we can get to the the fuck up. So I want to go sort of way back and talk about uh, how sort of how you got your start. How, I mean, I'm not sure if it'll make it in at the beginning of this. We were talking about Wyoming and boxcars, but how did you how did you start doing this? How did you become a reporter? Well, the uh, there was a guy on our block, and I grew up in Park Slope in Brooklyn. I was one of seven kids in an Irish Catholic family, and uh, where where in the order? Uh, first boy, second child. I have five sisters, uh, and I now have four daughters. So I've been fucking outnumbered <laughs> all, all along the way. But you know, it takes like forty-five minutes of explaining these days to actually convince people. Like Park Slope was once a working-class, middle-class neighborhood of uh, Catholic parishes, um, full of cops and firemen and school teachers. Um, and that's the Park Slope I grew up in and went to St. Saviors, you know, with other kids, were, you know, were at St. Francis and St. Thomas and Holy Name, uh, and that's how the neighborhood was divided up. And, uh, there were not many African Americans in that neighborhood, um, but one of them, a family, lived on our block, uh, in Park Slope, and the guy's name was Andy Cooper, and he was an interesting cat um, with some experience in the world of black politics in Brooklyn. And he had an idea to create a a, a black weekly newspaper. Um, and again, you know, with my imperfect understanding of American newspaper history, I think I've got it pretty much down that, you know, New York unlike cities like Chicago and Baltimore and Pittsburgh, did not actually have much of a history of a black press. Um, so, you know, you know, it's many years later, but it was not a bad, not a crackpot notion or business plan. And, uh, you know, Brooklyn had 2.2 million people, many of them, or increasing numbers of them, uh, African-American. And, uh, you know, at the time, the only meaningful, and, and that's to be generous, uh, you know, black paper in the city was the Amsterdam News, right? which was a, you know, a fucking freak show. <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, uh, Andy had an idea to, to create this black weekly newspaper and, and spent a couple of years putting together the financing for it and then put together a staff and I wound up uh, the only white reporter on the staff. Um, 
and uh in a kind of cool reverse token experience wound up as the sports writer right the African Americans get hired in newspapers and then they get sent to the sports department. Well, they hired Whitey and <laughs> uh, sent him to sports. And, you know, we're starting a paper from fucking scratch. So, what does it even mean to have a sports department? <laughs> right. Um, what were you covering? But, you know, the really cool thing of it, you know, so the great gift of New York is, you know, I mean, you find stories everywhere. You know, I think one of the first ones I did, which was enormous, if somewhat grim fun, was. Uh, there was actually a Rikers Island Olympics. Um, Prisoner Olympics? Yeah. Or, well, it's a, technically Rikers is a jail. And people, this is the right, New York right, Times right. dickhead in me. <laughs> uh, the uh, See, a jail is actually different from I'm, a prison. I'm, I'm open to getting corrected. <laughs> it's of no fucking consequence. <laughs> the, um, but uh, anyway, so the, and, and at, at Rikers, there are like six or seven different jails. Uh, there's jail for women, there's jail for juveniles, there's jail for this, that, and the other thing. And uh, so they had the press, um, it was like, I think just me, um, out to cover the Olympics. And they had, there was a series of events, um, which included, not surprisingly, push-ups, um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the great jail or prison pastimes. You know, I, I shouldn't make too much fun of it because, you know, had an element of sadness to it all. But, you know, on some, like, Saturday morning, and it was, like, I don't know, 35 degrees out, and you're out on uh, Rikers. You had to take a bus to get out there. Um, they the, 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 the young people of the jails and the older people came out, and they carried the flags of, of their own jail, um, you know, like it was as if it was, like, a fucking country in the <laughs> Olympics. And... Uh, they had a little uh, jury-rigged um, PA system, and they played uh, Chariots of Fire. No shit. <laughs> and you're, you know, you're, you're watching the events go off the hundred-yard dash, whatever. And you, you go and interview the guys, and you're like, "Okay, dude, here's what, what's your name? Okay, right." And you ran a ten-five. Okay, and how many years are you doing? <laughs> uh, yeah, different stats. Yeah. So it was like, yeah, no, I'm here. You know, I'm facing like twenty-five to life, but you know, I thought I ran well. Um, <laughs> you know, I've worked on my fucking, you know explosion out of the blocks <laughs> anyway it was a pretty great experience um and how old were you when you were doing that i don't know 22 or something like that um anyway it was it was a tremendous experience we, we uh you know uh, we were doing it on a shoestring um ed Koch was then mayor uh the city was not a particularly racially uh tranquil uh place once pop like people got to know the paper were they surprised when you were the reporter from the City Sun? Uh, actually, the greatest um, degree of surprise was, you know, after I left, uh, I would, you know, I was trying to find another job and I would send my clips out. And uh, I, would, I got invited everywhere. Um, and, you know, I do not mean to be demeaning of, you know, newspapers' efforts to diversify uh, the newsroom. And, you know, quite properly, they're very eager to, to, you know, interview as many uh, minority candidates as possible. Um, and I would, you know, invariably show up and you could see the right. fucking curtain of <laughs> dismay and confusion uh, fall across their faces, um, thinking like, what? what? The dude is white? Do you just play it straight in that situation? Yeah. I mean, what seemed to break their hearts most is that, you know, they, like, still had to, like, buy me lunch, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and we had to sit through this kind of, you know, fucking kabuki theater lunch, not really recognizing or articulating what was so clearly at play. Right. Um, it was a priceless uh, experience and we did some actually some good work and we kicked you know I, I come to quite like Ed Koch over time um, particularly when seen against uh, Rudy Giuliani and Mike Bloomberg um, the uh, but we kicked his ass a bit um, which was good for him so what how did you go from there to the Times how'd you land at the Times oh you know it's probably the least impressive uh, story of career advancement ever I mean the uh, I, I left uh, like many exercises in idealism. Uh, you know the the experience at the City Sun. You know quickly fractured 
and there were you know disputes about politics and money and this that and the other thing um and i moved on and i worked briefly uh for united press international um uh as a clerk basically sitting on the phone at night um taking calls from reporters who were in ballparks around the country um and uh they would dictate their game stories to you uh and you type them up and try to hammer them out as as quickly as you can because UPI was in a nightly fight with the AP. You know, they had clients at newspapers across the country and their clients would always take and publish whoever, you know, filed first. Um, so it was, a, you know, it was a great sort of high-pressure uh, deadline uh, experience. So I, I did that for a bit and then uh, worked uh, up in Syracuse for two years at the Syracuse Post-Standard uh, and covered their... Uh, football team and so you were doing all sports yeah no I, you know I mean while I had landed in sports somewhat arbitrarily um, you know faced with a lack of earnings uh, I figured you know it's what little I had to sell um, although I had a natural you know love for it there's there's much that's um, you know really um, cool and valuable about sports writing. Um, you know, it teaches you to write fast. Um, it teaches you to, in particular, to fucking man up. Because, you know, there are a lot of reporters, bloggers now, whatever. You know, you can run your fucking mouth online or in the paper or whatever, criticize this politician, call that person a fucking coward, suggest that, you know, somebody's fucking, you know, uh, homosexual or whatever your grievance or you know bias is, um, but you never had to fucking face the people. Right, sports writer, you know you got to go to the fucking locker room every fucking day, and uh, you know, and stand up for your shit and answer for your shit and apologize when you fuck up. Um, so you know, it's a good formative experience. Uh, and, you know, sports writing is naturally, I think, uh, well, the story of sports. Um, you know, you, you learn some essentials about the arc and nature of storytelling. Yeah. Um, and you, I think and you it, learn how to do it quickly. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think Jimmy Breslin had the line, uh, which was that, you know, basically all journalism is sports writing. Um, you know, winners, losers final scores, goats, you know, heroes. Um, it doesn't really change. Uh, so if you get good at, you know, writing stories of heroes and get good at writing stories of goats, you know, you can probably cover the White House. Uh, and, was it, you know. when, so when you're in Syracuse covering football, what were what was your ambition? I mean, like, where, where did you want to get? What did you want to be doing? I wanted to get to the NNH Tavern. <laughs> uh, which was the little bar a uh, block from uh, the post standard um I, you know I, I i genuinely did uh the uh you know i had never had the experience of you know believing that i was in journalism because you know i was a you know soldier in the fight for truth and justice um and you know maybe that says something unflattering about me you know i i never burned with you know uh, the crusaders uh fire i never um you know aspired to be uh you know the next red smith um and i was kind of making it up as i went along um and you know in life you find some things that, you know, you're talented at or reasonably talented at and you can find them out as a consequence of design or you can find them out by complete fucking accident and, you know, or, you know, when it works uh, well, you know, serendipity. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was doing something. I was getting paid for it. Um, Did the Crusader thing come? Like, w never. When you were running the Metro desk at the Times, you guys broke the Spitzer story. 
Yeah, but that didn't have anything to, you know, it was, uh, it was not the fruit of some, you know, sense of fucking moral purpose or, you know, the greater good of um, of uh, journalism. Uh, just because it was a fucking irresistible story. It was a good story. I mean, yeah. But it was always just that good story. Like, it wasn't, you, you didn't have some urge to, you know, take people down or whatever. You know, I mean, you got to be careful uh, about that. Um, you know, I actually don't think it's a, you know, particularly commendable, uh, you know, thing to, to say you want to take people down. Probably not. I mean, I work at a place now um, and quite love it, ProPublica, uh, whose kind of mission statement is, um, you know, to do journalism in the public interest. Um you know, you can alternately call it accountability journalism. You can call it, you know, journalism. Uh, you know, with that that aims to produce impact. I actually have T-shirts in my bag over there on the couch. Uh, we have a sense of humor at um, uh, at ProPublica. This might come as a surprise to people who read the website, but the um, uh, but the T-shirts are journalism with a moral force. <laughs> Doesn't that make you want to go out and? Uh, um, you know, fucking commit journalism. Anyway, the uh, but the idea that you're in it for the sport of you know like knocking people off or whatever. I you know. Uh, well, I I mean I I guess that was poorly put on my part. But there there are people, there are lots of people I think who get into this out of a sense of uh, injustice and people who are trying to right wrongs and people who are trying to expose. Bad deeds. Right. I am not one of them. You're not one of those folks. I mean, do you know? Do I see its you know value and uh, efficacy? Absolutely. Have I done my share of it? Sure. But um, it was by accident. But it's not because you know um, I got up that morning, you know, thinking, you know, you know, how can I contribute to my country's greater good? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, it's because I got up and think, what the fuck else am I going to do? <laughs> Aside from go to the bar at the end. So you're in Syracuse. How, how do you land at the Times? How's that happen? Um, the, uh, I decided after a year and a half at Syracuse that, uh, you know, it was just an intolerable place. <laughs> uh, and uh, although I love the people I work with, uh, and uh, we, you know, we did our share of sh- shit stirring or whatever. I think we got their basketball program put on probation or whatever. Not that that's any longer a novel or meaningful claim. Um, the um, But I decided to come back to Brooklyn uh, and uh, left without the prospect of any job. Uh, and as I was kind of walking out the door in Syracuse, I, you know, I sort of put out feel it. I said, like, I'm going back to Brooklyn, you know, but I don't have a place to live. Um you know, so any tips, welcome. And uh, uh, as it happened, somebody said, well, you know, I used to work here, Jim Norton, who had gone down to New York and covered the Mets for the Daily News, is leaving his apartment in Brooklyn. So if you want to swoop in and get it, here's the lady's contact. And uh, so I came down to Brooklyn and I uh, called up the lady and I said, you know, you know I'd love to meet and... Uh, interested in the third floor studio and uh wonderful woman lovely woman and she sat me down and uh you know she said you know what do you do and i was like well i don't know i'm kind of a fucking sports writer (laughs) and uh she said well look i'm the uh deputy sports editor at the new york times so i want to be clear with you like i'm not going to read your clips you have no hope of working at the New York Times. If you want to be a tenant in my home, you're welcome to, but let's be clear. Um, I thought, you know, she came on a little fucking heavy <laughs> for somebody I'd never met. And, uh, um, you know, but we, we signed our contract and uh, I took over the apartment. And, you know, because newspapers are, by and large, maybe even 90% uh, driven by desperation. You know, a couple months later, <laughs> right. 
There's a knock at the door. Would you would you be mind covering you know the Rutgers women's basketball game or something <laughs> on Saturday? Um, and uh, I did a few of those uh, assignments uh, for her and them. And uh, so basically, your advice to like a young reporter would be find a landlord who can give you a job and then wait him out. Tremendous strategy. <laughs> uh, You've hired lots of people. Do you? Is there something that you're looking for when you hire folks? I mean, how does that play into how you like? Uh, well, this is how I I hire people. Um, I I interview them deeply about their own lives, and the deciding question is whether they can tell me how their parents met. <laughs> if somebody can't tell me how their own parents met, and you'd be stunned at how many people can't, then I'm moving on. Really? Well, what kind of reporter can you be? <laughs> like, <laughs> what, what, how could you lack the basic curiosity to know how your parents met? So let me put you on the spot, Max, and I'm sure you can answer. I got a pretty good one. All right, do it. Um... My dad was the editor of an alt-weekly in Boston, Massachusetts called The Real Paper, short-lived alt-weekly called The Real Paper, first editor. And uh, he went on a, a trip to Israel with like a bunch of, he'd been like a Republican politician, and he went with a bunch of politicians to Israel to do some like, I don't know, just think tanky thing in Israel. And he came back and he wrote a column for the paper about his time in Israel. <clears throat> and uh, they illustrated it with a cartoon. And the cartoon was totally making fun of all of these, like, <laughs> politicians from the Northeast going to Israel. Even though that was not, like, he was being very highfalutin and, like, prognosticating about the future of the Middle East. And the, but the cartoon was, like, blatantly making fun of him and the other white men who were there. And, uh, and the cartoonist was my mom. Awesome. See, I, you know, I mean, <clears throat> all right, so let me tell you. And you. And you, well, you have to go now. All right, I will. But I'll tell you one little thing just because I, I regretted not saying it the other day. So one of the great people, professional people in my lives, uh, another person I have a professional crush on is Jim Dwyer, who who now writes the About New York column um, for the Times, uh, but who won a Pulitzer Prize uh, back in the 90s uh, when he was a columnist at Newsday. Um Anyway, uh, fucking balls out, journalist, poet at heart, uh, good Irishman, good fucking dad. And uh, he gave me a line one day that I've stolen shamelessly, and uh, which is he believes that there are three great inextinguishable human desires. The desire for sex, the desire for food, and the desire for stories. People want to tell stories. People want to hear stories. Um, it's a you know enduring and uh, epic human uh, need. And anyway, the uh, you had a question there. Um, oh, we were talking about how how you got that gig, and and then I was going to start asking more questions about like you as a young reporter. Oh no 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 we're, no no no! We're actually talking about my mom and dad. You oh yeah. The, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't have to right, care so, about that. All right. So <laughs> so um, anyway, so the great need to tell stories. So I guess that's what it comes back to. Why I would ask you know a job applicant that question? Like, can you tell me a good story? Mm -hmm. um, and can you do it on the spot? And Is that something that you? Is that something that you always had? Like, could you always do that? I So I went back and read a bunch of, like, your early stuff at the Times, you know? And uh, there's a real difference in your writing. You you got that job in 87, I think. Uh-huh. Is that right? Very so, good. yeah, I did my research. So your writing in 87, right, is, like, it's it's uh, it's great, but it's, it's uh, quite different than the way that you wrote later in your career. And I wonder if you always had the that instinct, if you were always a storyteller, if you always had that impulse, or whether that was something you sort of learned on the job while you're covering the Mets and the Rangers and right. all that stuff. 
The uh, well, look the um, for all my you know bullshit bravado and you know whatever about growing up in Brooklyn. You know, I grew up with a group of of uh, guys who you know were classic sort of Brooklyn um, cop son, firefighter son. Uh, you know, um, sanitation guy's son. And uh, they, uh, you know, we were kind of modest schoolyard athletes, um, but a very tight group. And uh, we loved telling stories. Uh, and we sustained ourselves, you know, through countless fucking empty... We used to drink in um, the doorways of uh, apartment buildings. Because if you're drinking, you know, like in February in Brooklyn, like you got to get inside. So we would, uh, and we weren't old enough to be in bars, so we would uh, find our way into the vestibules, term not often heard, um, of apartment buildings. Like you'd you'd Uh, like buzz? Well, somebody would go in and you'd come behind them or whatever. And uh, we could set up shop in there. And, you know, there'd be four or five guys, and we'd drink a case or two or whatever. And we would tell stories. And they were, you know, I mean, they're the same fucking stories or whatever. But you actually, there's actually a fucking gift for telling or finding ways of telling the same story over and over. And I actually think that that's applicable to newspaper and my there hasn't there is not a story that hasn't been written um i mean maybe one or two i'm trying to think of the most outrageous i mean the fucking you know plane dropped down in the fucking hudson when i was metro editor <laughs> and no one died and whatever <laughs> like okay that, that, we haven't seen that before um but basically no stories not been written before so there is a true um talent and and uh dividend uh, for being able to tell the same old stories again, you know, with a little flourish. One would like to believe it's more or less accurate. Um, but that was our, that was our deal. Uh, you know, and, and it was our bond. And, um, so how, how did your way of telling stories change once you got to the times? I, I, I just grew up. I mean, you know, you're you're beyond sweet to have put yourself through the misery of reading my shit, but over the years. But I mean, there's nothing different than just growing up, you know. Um, and uh, you know, one likes to think if you're advancing in your career, you're getting better at what you're doing. Um, the um, were you always as good at the politics part of it? How'd you get better at the politics part of it? Not, I mean, the internal politics part of it. Because it seems like you're you're pretty good. Part of your success at the paper was about how how good you were at the internal politics. I, you know, I don't know that that's true, but the <clears throat> it does go back to the question that I think if you're trying to find your way in any institution, um, whether you do it consciously or not. Um, you know, you you want to, or you're drawn to filling, you know, a vacuum. What does this place need that it doesn't have? And is that something I can offer it? And, um, again, I don't think it was ever a conscious thing for me. Um, but uh, I think I must have sensed, um, you know, a need at the place. Uh, for somebody to, you know, be irreverent, um, somebody to, um, you know, have a degree of balls to, you know, speak what you took to be the truth. You know, I rather famously got into a public dust-up with Hal Raines when he was on his way to flaming out rather spectacularly as executive editor at the paper and uh, you know they had called a big you know public meeting to 
the you know for him to address the concerns uh of the staff um and you know i was just a shithead assistant metro editor at the time and i got up you know dropped some f-bombs uh you know asked some hard questions uh and I said it at one point, you know, because he had a reputation for being a, a, you know, a bully and a whatever. And I said, you know, people here at the paper, you know, feel more bullied than led. And, you know, whatever significance or consequence that had, um, you know, in subsequent conversations with executive editors, I tell them like okay so that was my thing right people felt more bullied but the truth is people still want to be led Mm -hmm. um people still really respond um to um you know something that feels like um inspiration and uh if i sensed that there was a uh, avenue of opportunity at the place um for stepping forward um, uh, to try and lead. Um, you know, that was, you know, that was my best experience. I mean, people ask me, okay, so you were, you know, you were a reporter, you're on, fr- you know, front page, whatever, you regarded as a good writer. You know, what did it, how was it to give up your byline or whatever, like, you know, and the public recognition that comes with it. And, uh, you know, my, dead honest answer is it it mattered not at all um and when i became an editor and i became sort of invested in the fortunes and assisting in the fortunes of others and in taking responsibility not just for you know this good story on this thursday um but the bigger and you know more perilous uh, future of a great institution, um, I found that spectacularly rewarding. What are the stories that you remember? What What are the ones that stick with you? But I, I never told the story about my mom and my dad, you dick. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, fuck I, you. I'm getting your fucking grill. All I want to hear is your your story about your parents. That's yeah, the whole reason I we're do, here. You know, dude, but you, you asked me the question and then you didn't get an answer. Like, Try to fucking you know market that as a reporter. All right, <laughs> I'm not. I'm no reporter. Go ahead. The, what, what's the story? You told me you were a reporter. Oh, a long time ago, previous yeah. life. All right. Now, the, I, uh, now I just sit in this room and ask people questions. So my dad grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. His dad was a printer, and I uh, came out of Madison. He he went briefly to school for two years at Amherst in the East, and you know thought he was going to a fancy school or whatever. But his sister came along, and she had to go to school, too, and his dad didn't have the scratch to pay for the two of them. So uh, he came back to Wisconsin and enrolled at the University of Wisconsin, where they could all pay uh, in-state tuition, whatever, and graduated from there and uh, um, enlisted in the Navy, went to officer's candidate school, uh, and uh, outperformed Stan Turner, who went on to become uh, both an admiral and the head of the CIA. I think my dad graduated 14 in his class of some hundreds or whatever and served in the Korean War on a destroyer, the USS Buck, uh, and uh, befriended a, a guy from New Jersey uh, during their time on the destroyer. Um, they came out of the Navy. They decided to go to law school. They both went to Yale Law School together. And my dad was best man at uh, Peter Fleming's wedding. And... Uh, Showed up uh, for Peter's wedding and saw one of his four sisters and said, I'm going to marry that girl. Uh, And he did. And uh, she's a remarkable lady. Uh, Actually, it was actually in the the newspaper or the magazine racket herself, came out of college, worked for Red Book Magazine back when Red Book Magazine was was an actual literary magazine. Yeah. Uh, and uh had some great stories about S.J. Perelman and his fucking awful pawing behavior in the back of a cab. So your uh, your, your mom was in the business? 
Eh, kind of. The, uh, but, you know, she's a pretty unique lady. At age 65, she, died, she decided to go back and get her Master's of Divinity. <laughs> no shit. So she has her Master's of Divinity from General Theological Seminary. Uh, <laughs> and uh, she's still kicking. 87. I have some more questions. We've been at this a while, and There's then I'll, I'll let you go. I'll let you get out of here. But I'm going to ask you these questions. Dude, I'm here for fucking, you know, going <laughs> for, to beer for the rest of time. Man. Okay. Here, here is a question I All have. Right. This is a question I have about ProPublica. How do you make what you guys are doing not boring? It's a, you know, perfectly legitimate question and, you know, one that uh, I think, you know, to some degree or another tortures all of us there. Um, and, you know, what's sweet about and to me impressive, I've only been there since February about the place, is its own kind of self-awareness. And so they, you know, they don't pretend that's not a, a legitimate issue and a problem. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a group of, of younger uh, reporters there who meet on a monthly basis to talk about the craft of writing and um, to look at stories done by others and to talk about um, the very real issue of, you know, how do we, um, you know, we can't have impact if you can't get people to finish our stories. Um, and But it, it, so, it's about the way you tell stories, but it's also about story choice. I mean, listen, I, I'm, a, I'm like a, a massive fan and, a, uh, a, you know, I, I'm a donor. Um, but it's also about the story choice. Like, it, it, it's, a, it's a hard thing to get people excited about taking their medicine. The, and it's an interesting place for you to land if you didn't have, if you don't have that impulse, if you don't have that crusader impulse, if you're in it for the story. I don't know. How, how does that work? Uh, totally fair uh, question. And, you know, you know, to the extent, uh, you know, anybody at ProPublica has the profound misfortune of listening to this. The, uh, I don't want to disappoint them because I'm tremendously uh, thrilled and proud to be there. And for all of my, you know, whatever, bullshit about, uh, you know, uh, I'm not a fucking crusader or whatever, um, the value of what they're doing and uh, the integrity with which they pursue it is inspiring. And uh, I'm thrilled to be there. But you know the 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 two things are not in opposition. Uh, the idea that you could be a lover of storytelling and be working at a place that you know has a very real set of uh, measurements for um, what they want to do and achieve through their journalism. So I, I, it's you know they are not in opposition, but you know. The idea that, you know, a, a compelling story has to have, you know, a widow with a handicapped child uh, in it or, you know, a battle scene with mortars, you know, landing around you to be compelling is, you know, a false choice or a false... Uh, if you can say that scores of people every year die of overdoses of Tylenol. They include children, they include older folks, they include alcoholics. And that is a human cost that was entirely preventable. I don't know what's not compelling about that. I had this whole thing of notes and questions and stuff, and I didn't open it until right now. But I'm just going to read you this quote that I read uh, while, I was, while I was reading your stuff that uh, that you said recently, which is, uh, if you are not asking yourself every couple of years how to once more scare yourself to death, then you're living something of a coward's life. Ain't no room for cowards in journalism at this moment in time. Yeah, I'm fucking wincing uh, <laughs> <laughs> listening to that because, you know, read that way, it'd be like, who the fuck is this asshole? Um, but I think, you know, 
whether I'm a persuasive evangelist of that notion um, or whether I have the standing um, to uh, proclaim it, it's surely true. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I made a variety of speeches and presentations to my staff over the year, whether it was in sports or in Metro. Um, and among the things I, you know, said is that, you know, our jobs today are harder than they ever have been. And that's okay. And that's not unfair. If you've been, if the challenge is to, if not rethink everything, to certainly reimagine a lot and ask yourself whether, um, you know, uh, you are up to that reimagining. That's life. That's, you know, um, truth. I, you know, I'll, I'll tell one little thing, and then I'm sure we've gone way over whatever. But the uh, when I would when I would make that speech or some version of it. Uh, to my staff, who I actually had to attend, so <laughs> uh, <laughs> they had to put up with it. The uh, I would invoke my mom, the uh, Masters of Divinity student, and uh, when I had found myself um, a single dad of two little girls, and I had to leave sports and remake my career, and um, you know was trying to feed them. Captain Crunch every morning and bologna sandwiches for uh, lunch and try to convince myself that I could I could raise these girls by myself. She said, you know, here's the deal. It feels really hard now and, you know, overwhelming and you wonder whether you can do it or not do it. That's not really the hardest part. You're going to be fine. Your girls will be great. Your career will be intact. And then there'll come a moment in which you realize, you know, I'm okay. So what will I do? What will you do with that new opportunity? Will you dare to fall in love again? Will you dare to um, do something completely different with your career? That it is when, you know, the light of possibility shines that it can feel most scary. And I think that's true for newspapers now. All right whatever the fuck we want to call them, news <laughs> organizations or whatever, is I do believe the New York Times will survive. I do believe um, other great enterprises in journalism will survive. And when that becomes clear, and, you know, the immediate panic wanes, what do you still have in you? Can you dream something up all over again? Because that's what's going to be offered to you and that's what's going to be required. And that, not the times of slashing budgets and laying off staff, that will be the hard part. That seems like a pretty good place to end. Joe, thanks, uh, thanks so much for taking the time, man. Cheers. The uh, well, we we ran out of beer anyway, so it's fucking coming to a quick end. <laughs> it's gonna end either way. I'm happy to be here. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Limmer. Our guest this week was Joe Sexton. Thanks very much to Joe for taking the time. Thanks to you for listening. Uh, it has been a really fun year of doing this podcast. And uh, next year will also be fun. We got all kinds of great guests 
coming up in January. We're taking two weeks off. We will be back January 8th. Thanks to Tiny Letter and also George Saunders's collection, 10th of December. That is our sponsor this week. I can't believe you don't own that book yet. Go buy it. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.